This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Jason Goodger, Commissioning Editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Today I'm talking to Carl Stratton, a roboticist and research fellow at the School of Computing at Edinburgh Napier University. He's currently conducting research on realistic human robots specifically on more realistically synchronising their speech and mouth movements. So thanks very much for joining us today, Carl. No problem. So, yeah, just as by way of background, sort of one of the the big uh, talking points or maybe even driving factors behind research on on, realistic human robotics is this uh, so-called uncanny valley effect. So sort of before we get into the to the actual meat of your work, can you just explain uh, to the people listening what that is, if, if they're unfamiliar with it? Yes, the uncanny valley is a point where things like robots, humanoid robots and CGI characters um, start to give us an eerie feeling. And the reason for that is because they are not perfect representations of humans. They never quite get there and because they never quite get there they emit these feelings of of terror, unease, unfriendliness, and that's the uncanny valley. It's kind of they call it a perceptual dip, which is is basically the it's they call it a point between being alive and being dead. Basically, it's this kind of zombie, this idea of a zombie in between the two, and and humanoid robots and CGI characters because 
they inhibit similar kind of qualities um, of a zombie fall into the uncanny valley. Yeah, I'd like to say like um, it sits somewhere between Wally, like your sort of cute robot, and then the T one thousand from uh, Terminator Two. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's what's the sort of current thinking on the on the psychology? What's going on here? Why does this? Um, why do people find these sort of human but not completely human uh, robots a bit you know a bit iffy, a bit creepy? Um, I think it's because from well from birth we're able to detect faces and we're able to analyze faces and faces play such an important part um, in our communication and when we start to see things that shouldn't be there out of place we do get that feeling of in any kind of it's called repulsion but I, I guess it's just we, I call it negative feedback like it, it's unnatural feedback and one of the, the, the arguments um, recent arguments that have come to light is that this is starting to also occur in um, facial enhancement surgery so people who have you know their lips kind of enhanced and, and things like that this this can be considered as, as sort of the higher realms of the uncanny valley um, if I was to build a robot and it had sort of these enhancements and I said oh I'm trying to make it as re real as possible people might say well it doesn't look completely real because you've added these enhancements so on a kind of um, perceptual level that's that would we consider that as the higher realms of the uncanny valley um, there's also there's other types of uncanny valley as well it's not just appearance it's in functionality as well the way things move the way the way robots move if, so, if a robot doesn't move yeah, the way we yeah. kind of expect it to move um then again that gives that feeling of unnaturalness uneasiness and that is kind of the the emphasis of the uncanny valley effect yeah i remember there's the what's he called the atlas robot and um, I just thought that was amazing and really fascinating. But other people, they're, they're sort of pushing him over and he's recovering his balance. And, you know, some people are saying, oh, you know, that thing's going to turn on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's purely just because it looks <laughs> and behaves like a human. And because the human drive is, if we see something that looks and behaves or anything kind of like a human, we automatically start seeing well, it must be able to feel and think and have emotions, emotions like a human when it doesn't. So it's that kind of it's that drive again, <clears throat> that kind of innate drive. Yeah, that's really interesting. So sort of moving on to your your sort of um, the role you play in this. So you focus on uh, speech matching facial movements to speech. So why is that important? Why why does that play such an important role in in um, in this this effect well when i started this all started from the uncanny valley um, theorem and the two key areas in the uncanny valley theorem are eyes and the mouth and when we communicate we our attention goes between the eyes and the mouth we look at eyes to gauge attention and we look at mouth for speech reading for understanding and with robots particularly anything that is kind of um, outside the realm of, of them natural lip movements, when the speech is so perfectly coming out, it um, it can be confusing and disorientating, especially if you're kind of interacting over a certain amount of time for a length of time. Um, I think it, they also saw this in the in one of the recent Star Wars remakes when um, they did a, a CGI character and the the, the lip synchronization was was kind of off. Um, so yeah, and then. 
but that's where this project started really it's it started off with how can i turn systems that are used in cgi animation and games to turn speech into something called visemes which is kind of the lip positions how can i take that that software and create it for a robot how can i turn this into a robot right. so that's how that's where that started really um so when I was first doing this project, I was actually helping teach in the animation department at the time because the, the previous university I, I, I was at didn't quite have a robotics department. So that's where this, the, these ideas started to, to, come, to come together because they use programs, uh, there's one called Oculus, which basically it takes speech and it converts it into a CGI mouth with lip positions. So it automatically reads speech and extracts the visims for the mouth positions, and I want to do that with a robot. So to start with, I created a robot mouth, and the robot mouth was modelled on the human mouth. But before I did that, I looked at previous robotic mouth systems to see what was missing, um, and that was kind of really important just to to be able to see what are the the key muscles, what muscles work yeah. together, what can be left out of this mouth, because um, obviously it's a very small area and you you kind of confine to what what you can actually put into a, a robotic mouth. Yeah. One of the key things that, that was missing was something called the bussinator muscles, which are the muscles at the um, the corners of the mouth, and not the cheek muscles, but the corners of the mouth. And they are used for pursing and stretching the lips um, when we create vowel and consonant sounds. So I replicated these muscles, and I I I, I created this kind of robotic mouth prototype. And I thought, right, the next stage is to, to create an application that can take these lip shapes and put them into this robotic mouth. So we use something called um, a visim chat. And it's something that's used a lot in CGI and game design, which is basically a list of sounds, word sounds and letter sounds and the uh, mouth shape, the uh, matching mouth shape. And I made my robot do these shapes so for each like the A's, A's and O's, all these robotic mouth positions um, I collected and saved into a, a configuration, um, configuration file to be able to bring them out later and, um, and use them. And the next part was how to create a system that can handle speech. Now, previously in the, in the other applications, the speech was kind of a secondary thing. Um, you spoke and then you put it into a file, into the application and it read the file. Um, I, I need to do it live. I, I couldn't. There was no room to kind of have some processing time because if you use processing time, then this idea of speech becomes unnatural. The conversation, you know, there's lots of huge pauses in the conversation, which is unnatural. Yeah. Um, so it's what I did. I created a machine learning algorithm, and I was able to take speech synthesis, which is robotic speech, like you have on Siri and and various other um, applications take that that speech synthesis out of a laptop and put one end of it into something called a microprocessor and turn that um, audio data back into numerical data and the other part of it also went back into a, a processing um, system so I can actually see the sound wave like you see on a, a normal like in a recording studio yeah and then is what I did is I created a, a machine learning algorithm that could kind of recognize patterns in the incoming speech 
And that was done not by monitoring the speech itself as such, but the, the patterns in the waveform. So you're looking at kind of the, the pixel size and the length of each word and each sound. <coughs> and then basically feeding the system a bunch of samples. So it kind of knew what it was looking for. Um, and when it came across it, it was able to transfigure the robot mouth system to match to the positions that I matched on the chart. And that worked um, surprisingly well. Um, and then the, the next thing was, is, it was um, the, the voice, what I call the voice patterning system, um, which is syllables. So obviously when you talk the syllables, your draw moves up and down to syllables. And yeah. that was kind of the next stage to create this patterning system that, that would, the, if, the, if there was no sound, the mouth was shut, the louder the sound, the wider the robot mouth. And then there was tongue positions oh, yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> so there was tongue positions to include. And then when I actually put it all together, it was pretty amazing to see work. It was a, like we were talking about the Uncanny Valley. I think for the, for the one of the first times I actually sat with a robot and it was very strange to see because, you know, you see all these, these weird parts working together. Um, but yeah, and it, it, was, it was good once it was kind of configured and the system was trained it was really quite accurate in some respects in the, in the lip synchronization. It was very accurate and in some other parts it wasn't, but um, it's, it held up pretty well in the evaluation against existing robots. Yeah. So for those who haven't seen, um, seen uh, your work, your robot, so it's um, a, a pretty realistic looking head. Um, and it's, it's a head of a, an older, an older gent, how did you go about choosing choosing your character for your robot? I just find that really interesting. Well, there's actually two robots in the experiment. There's an older-looking one and a younger-looking robot. Um, the younger-looking robot doesn't get as much attention because I think the older-looking robot looks more realistic. But um, they, were, they were both kind of produced with, this, with the idea of, of being... One was the, a younger version of the older one. So they were both right. kind of the same, same robot. And when I was doing the tests, because the, the mouth test was part of a wider test which involved lots of different things like eyes and and personality so i wanted to compare how people interacted with an older looking robot and a younger looking robot and i i had, I had two sample groups i had a, a a sample group of of older people and younger people and what i found is that younger people preferred to interact with the younger robot and the older people preferred to interact with the older looking robot and um, there was also personalities as well so i had to design an older personality and then a younger personality. So right. I thought, well, I'm quite young, so I'll build the younger personality on myself. So I, my interest in I thought, well, I know my dad pretty well, and he's kind of old. So I, I modeled the older one him. So I had one that was kind of interested in what well, I'm interested in. The other one was interested in Snooker and John Smith. So it was big. <laughs> Is, that's really interesting. Is, have there been any sort of like big studies done on um, what? the public or people who are going to be interacting with these robots would like them to look like? Um, no, I'm, I'm not too sure about robots. There certainly was in CGI characters, but I, I actually wrote a paper just on this subject, which was um, designing robots and I call it, I call it embodied artificial intelligence, which is the personality of robots. Um, and it's really fascinating. Actually, there was a, there was a robot called Bina 48, which was modeled on somebody it was supposed to be act as like a vessel for her um so it's like a collection of her memories and, and life experiences 
but as, as, as in terms of actual academic research, there was very little to go on. Um, one of the interesting things that I, I'm starting to really realise now is that there's a, a, been a, a huge movement away from academia into the private sector. So we have like Hanson Robotics and Sophia, mm. and um, yeah, the, in in England, even in England, we have um, engineered arts, and they have their robots, their humanoid robots, and in J in Japan, they have the Geminoid series. And Russia have a new one called Promobot, which again is realistic humanoid robots for things like desk assistants and receptionists and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just sort of going into the into the nuts and bolts of of, of your work. So you're saying you're saying there you um, it's got lips, teeth, tongue, jaw bones, different facial actuating muscles. So what what's it actually made of? It was all 3D printed because I, I, it was a, a, like a rapid prototype and there's so many different versions of it that the whole system was um, 3D printed. But then some parts of it um, couldn't really stand up to the pressures of the mouth working all the time. So I had to have them CNC'd in a special aluminium composite, which is kind of very thin, very light material. Um, I think it eventually is, is what I, I, was hope, I am hoping to do is um, be able to publish all this online, kind of open source and, and let people, you know, create their own prototypes and expand on the system because, you know, it it has a high accuracy, but it's not totally accurate. And the, so there's still work there to be done, but because I've kind of moved on now to other stuff, you know, I'm kind of leave, I want to kind of leave it to the public. Or, well, engineers and, and robotics are interested in that to kind of expand on. Yeah. So how? Did, what was the design process like then? Like what was your, your, your sort of, your starting point and your initial goal. My my initial goal was was to replicate the the human mouth as closely as possible. Um, the speech synthesis was difficult to deal with because we don't have accurate speech synthesis, and it's never. I don't think it's ever really going to sound tr truly human, um, because the because human speech is so variable. And I think that's why my system works so well, because with speech synthesis you can control that. With human speech you can't. So if I was to speak into my machine learning application and try and get yeah, the robot to replicate, really. it's not going to do that. Um, speech synthesis is very controlled. Uh, if it's not totally controlled, but th there, are, there are limitations to it, and you can kind of work within these parameters um, to get really good results. So the, one of the, the other interesting points and, and the reasons why I, I designed it like I designed it was because I knew um, from my experience that previously, the, the humanoid robots out there like Sophia, they do not use these kind of technologies. They simply have random jaw movements to sound. And they sometimes they do it very well. And they tend to do it very quickly, so it's hard to see exactly. So when you do things quickly and the speech is kind of at its normal pace, then there is a little bit of scope there for for, for all, almost it tricks the human brain it, it tends to be if, if the lips are going slower then you know you kind of see that but if things are going faster you, you tend not to notice it too much and i really wanted to see if i could kind of improve on all this so from my studies i was able to determine that m using things like machine learning is a, a lot more accurate and, and definitely the way to go to be doing these things rather than kind of just randomised lip movements and positions and things. Yeah, that's really because um, 
going back to you, you were saying about CGI and video games, like I've recently noticed, I don't know if, if you're familiar with it, but I really like Demon Souls and Dark Souls, those games. And they recently did uh, a sort of revamp of Demon Souls, which is quite old for the PlayStation 5. And one of the things that was vastly improved was the synchronization of the characters uh, as, as they were speaking, like with, the, with their mouths. They lo it looked so much more natural than previously when it was sort of like a badly dubbed, uh, you know, 80s movie or something. Yeah. So is that that's like um, similar to, to the, the, the stuff you've been working on previously? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty much hit the nail on the head. But I'd I'd also say that imagine at the time when you were playing them videos, video games the first time around, you you might not have noticed that as much. Or if you did notice it, you kind of yeah, thought, probably. well, well, that's just that's it's still really good, it's still a really good attempt. Um, but with humanoid robotics, it's different because they're in front of you, they're there. Um, CGI characters, they get away with a lot because they are there. Um, when you have a robot in a, in a room in front of you, there's very little hiding places for these things and you're able to kind of really pick out um things that are going wrong and things that are natural and that's one of the things that really came about in my studies was was how people have this kind of inbuilt ability to to recognize things that are not quite right and what you might think is a tiny thing can actually give the whole game away especially when we're considering um i wrote an, an, another kind of model an idea called the multimodal turing test it's kind of it's been also now the the Westworld test, which is basically oh. when you when you when you create a robot and it gets to the point where you can no, can no longer tell the difference between the robot and the human, um, you know things like that. And what goes into that as well? So it was kind of a model that was it's based on like a triangle, like a hierarchy. And I, the, the the closer you get to the top, the harder it is, of course, you know, to, to actually get these these nuances, these things, and things like lip synchronization, pupil dilation is another area I've worked on, um, robotic pupil dilation. Mm. Um, it's these tiny nuances that play a huge part in it because these are the things that give the game away, you know, and things like facial tics or, or whatever, just just these tiny nuances that we don't even realize are important in a conversation, um, suddenly become crucial yeah that's really interesting so sort of um yeah westwood west i'd forgotten about that actually i really enjoyed that um so what are the potential applications of this type of work you know what what's what's the end goal what do we want to do with it um for me i always use the example of of data from star trek as the perfect yeah. example for this because data he acts as like this very humanistic interface between lots of different things. It acts as an interface between people and aliens. So obviously aliens that don't speak English and he acts as a translator, but not only that, he also acts as an interface between things like the computer and a person. So things that would be very difficult, calculations that would be very difficult, is able to trans translate that information and give it in a very simplified way, but in a very humanistic way with emotion, with facial expressions. And that's why I think this technology will eventually head towards. I mean, we have to remember that not everybody can interact with technology effectively. We're very privileged, I think, to have grown up with technology and to be able to use technology, but there's lots of people in the world who don't have that. And creating something like a humanoid robot would allow them to kind of integrate with technology a lot more naturally. Um, so that's another kind of, of, of use. I always, I always think the data Examples are a really good one, um, rather than the Terminator stuff. Kind of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the friend, the friendlier end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. 
So you mentioned there like alien um, data, sorry, translating alien languages and things. Is there, so I only know, I know there's some work in Japan that I've seen, but um, is there any sort of differences between different languages in this sort of, sort of stuff? Um, yes, definitely. Pronunciations and, and even um, regional dialects, like my Yorkshire accent, would be a, a huge factor yeah. of, of this. Um, again, I think that's why having a machine learning algorithm is the way to go, because these are the sort of things you can train the system on. Um, so, yeah, that is a very, it, it's very interesting. It's something, again, I, I think I'd be really interested in, in, in looking at later on um, to see what the influences of, of, of language and dialects and accents and things yeah so what do you think like um the time frame is for this sort of thing like like playing the long game when when are we going to be seeing like you say an interface say when when am i going to have one in my home that can you know help say i don't know maybe i'm elderly or i'm disabled or something that sort of you know i don't want to say robot butler but you you, you know what i mean <laughs> I do. <laughs> Well, you might be in luck because um, Hanson Robotics have announced, it was only a few weeks ago, that they're, they're mass rolling out the Sophia robot. So that's their aim for the for, um, 2021, 2022 is to start um, rolling out this Sophia model. But I argued that right. how useful that would be is kind of massively up for debate because um, Sophia is actually semi-autonomous, not fully autonomous. So there's going to be there's going to be certain things she can't do um, you're going to have to do for her and I think it might be too early to start even thinking about these sort of disenhumanized robots out on a mass scale um, and mm. at least until they can start doing things fully auto like themselves and um, without any human aid um, and even then you're still going to have to get it past kind of all the ethicists there's a lot of really good work done on, in AI ethics and robotic ethics um, so yeah I, I, it's really hard to say um, I think it's a, a long way away, um, but at the same time, there's lots of good research going on at the moment, which is also pushing it forward. So it's very difficult to give you an answer to that. Yeah, yeah, no worries. So yeah, that's been great. So you just mentioned earlier that now you you're moving on to new projects. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, what's what what are you hoping to work on next? What are your plans for the next few years? Well, I, I, I'm at the moment I'm working on what's called we're calling. Um, visually enhanced common sense language models, which is basically allowing robots to use some level of human common sense. So an example of this would be if I had a robot and I had a vision system and I asked it to find a pen on a table, it could do that, no problem, because it has object recognition and it could recognise a pen. But if, you, if the pen was in a drawer, say in a kitchen, right. and you asked it to find the pen, it would spend all day going around looking for something, but not ever opening the drawer. So this idea of common sense knowledge would be giving the robot some ability to know that pens are kept in drawers, clothes are kept in a wardrobe. And these are the things that are missing out. So it's, it's like a cross between language and vision. Um, there's like a, a crossover in our common sense, what we call common sense knowledge. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. And we're currently developing a, a robot to help people with cooking tasks. So. Um, it's like a, a robot chef to use in a kitchen. But you're able to ask it things and, and do things which you can't normally do with things like um, the Amazon Echo being an example. If you ask that um, to give you a recipe or help you cook, it gives you it in one solid block and it just reads the whole thing out. And this would be more intuitive. It would be more like a, an information giver, information follower kind of 
um, construct, but also with lots of common sense knowledge bases embedded in there. So you'd be able to ask lots of things like, um, I don't have a certain ingredient, is there another ingredient I could use instead of this? And you'd be able to, um, to do that as well. Thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. This podcast was brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. In the March issue, which is on sale now, we talk to Tim Berners-Lee about whether we can make the internet great again. We look at the experiment looking to bring hallucinogenic drugs to the NHS. And we dive into plans to build a city on Mars. And of course, there's much, much more inside and on our website, sciencefocus.com. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.